Hello, I'm Julia Samuel, and welcome to A Living Loss, The Art of Losing and Finding Yourself. It's been just over a week since the restrictions in the UK have been lifted, and there is a real sense of change in the air. For many of you, it will feel like a relief and a welcomed, even longed-for change. For others, it may feel a little overwhelming. So it is important to remember that it takes as much psychological energy to unlock as it does to lock. We all have our default mode of coping when change hits us. So I urge you to support yourself with compassion and go at your own pace and find your way into the unlock gently. In today's episode, I spoke to Johan Hari, a man full to the brim with talent and energy. Our conversation was a total joy. We spoke about everything from understanding your pain to dealing with the confusion of your first love. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here is Johan. So today on A Living Loss, I'm joined by journalist and best-selling author, Johan Hari, the first in his family to go to university. Johan graduated from Cambridge with a double first, a double first in social and political sciences before starting his career at the New Statesman, moving on to write for some of the world's leading newspapers and magazines. His first book, Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on, on drugs, brilliantly challenged the way we think about drugs and addiction and was followed by his viral TED talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong, which has been viewed over 25 million times. 25 million people have watched your face and listened to your words. That is astonishing, isn't it? I mean, that's <laughs> such a huge number. Anyway... Chasing the Scream has been adapted for a film as the United States versus Billie Holiday with Yoan talking on the taking on the role of executive producer. I watched that film. It's amazing. It's so moving. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. His second book, another bestseller, The Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, offers a radical new way for us to think about depression and anxiety. So you probably realise the premise of my podcast, which is to talk about living losses. So living losses are losses which aren't from death, but from endings, from changing roles, changing jobs, moving country, mm. um, having projects that you wanted fail. So any of the sort of normal endings of life, it could be internal losses, like becoming menopausal or having a baby. Um, and my take on that is that we often don't acknowledge how important those changes are and that we often experience them like grief and that when we don't allow ourselves to grieve for those experiences that we have we often block our development to grow and change through the change that that's the kind of the thing that I've learned from the research that I did and I did nothing like the research you did um was that those that find a way of adapting through change are the people that thrive. And those that block change, which is very much your message too, are often those that kind of suffer and um, 
have more difficulty with life. And I guess as a kicking off point for you, I was thinking about the book, you know, your first big best-selling book, The Scream, and converting it to a, seeing it converted to a film. It's like a different piece of art and you no longer had control, having had every, the control of every full stop and comma. I mean, was that like a living loss or was it only a, a growth thing? Oh, that's interesting. I wanted to say just before we start, Julia, you know, I, I really admire your work. And my friend Natalie Carpenter, who's one of my closest and oldest friends, lost her son, her gorgeous son, Freddie, a few years ago. And I your know. book really helped her. And I'm really grateful oh. to you for the help you've given to her. Um, Thank you. In terms of the film, actually, you know, I am in the luckiest 0.01% of people who've had a book made into a film. It's also been made into a documentary as well, uh, because... Uh, I think I think I, I realised very early on, when it comes to my writing, I am a monstrous control freak. And I just thought, you, you cannot go into something as collaborative as a film with that mentality. You will go insane. So I, I very quickly thought to myself, I, I was surprisingly sane on this, but uh, I thought to myself, you've just got to separate, the, you know, you've written your book, you, you, you know, you've... You, you, you've if, you've said what you believe is important. You've, part of it was uncovering the story that's made the film, which is the story of how Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, was stalked and effectively killed by the man who invented the war on drugs, a man named Harry Anslinger. And, and so I just thought, you've done your job. Now your job is to help these people who are doing another job. And it's in a funny way, you know, help them when they ask you to help them. And I was the executive producer, and so I was involved in all sorts of ways. But don't invest your ego in how it turns out because that's so far beyond your control. As it happens, I'm beyond thrilled with how yeah. it turned out. It's amazing. And as it film. happens, we had this wonderful collaboration. And I mean, what like it was just an incredible thing to get to collaborate with someone like Andrew Day, who plays Billie Holiday, who is a goddess. She I is. Mean. Oh my. And I, I mean, I'd like to go on talking about that forever because it is fascinating and I I you know if I was you I would my chest would be bursting with pride to being part of such an incredibly important project but I tell you what I'm really interested in about you is that you are like you just have demonstrated you're very very good at telling other people's stories so you tell them like that you did about Billy with passion and with power and with your books so both Lost Connections and The Scream, you start with yourself. But it feels like you talk so much more about everybody else than you do about you. So I can see where you're curious. I can see your hunger for research and like wanting to make sense of things. And I guess, you know, I'm a therapist. I want, I want to find out how doing that has connected with you and... So one of the things I was thinking when I, when I read Lost Connections, which I did last summer, summer thanks to you and thanks to Decker, was has writing the book enabled you to repair a living loss? Because it feels like there was a lot of disconnection from your early life where you had violence and an ill mother and an absent father and the presence of addiction. So there was a lot of difficulty um, well, maybe I can I start with the pain, actually? Can I change my route? <laughs> so can, I, can I start with that? What I would term that was a living loss, what you were born into. But you tell me, what is your first living loss? 
thinking, I was thinking about this when you sent me the question because I would not have narrativized, well, I wouldn't have thought about it at the time as a loss. But as, as you mentioned, we had addiction in my, my family um, very close to me. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to because they were out of it. And of course, as a, I was so a very young child. Well, I didn't understand then. And what uh, you don't, as a child, think of that as a loss because you don't know what you need as a child consciously. Although, of course, you, 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 you're aware when your needs aren't met, but you don't. You don't Do have you a remember narr- what you felt in that moment? Do you remember what it, what the experience of it was? No, but I do remember. So I think one of the th- things I took from that loss was a cauterization, which is a fe- it's Ouch. A f- it's a feeling of I'm not going to get what I need in this situation. Now, of course, I'm, I'm applying words to it that I couldn't possibly have yeah, had yeah. then. But I think there's a, it's a, I think, and I've seen this with other people I've known who've gone through, of uh, who've had um, families where there was addiction or, or, or other forms of childhood trauma. Um, it, of course, there's many ways of responding to this. But I think for me, it was a sense of quite early on, you are not going to get your needs met in this direction. And you're going to have to cope in other ways and find other ways to be in the world. Um, so that was an early, you know, so when I work with people, I'll ask them to go back to an early memory and freeze frame that memory. Like you have just now, I can see someone on a chair in my imagination. I don't know whether it was a chair or there. And that what was the moment how did it feel and what did was the belief from it so the belief you took from it was I'm not someone who's going to get my needs met and I guess there's another belief from that is that I don't matter I would put it slightly differently okay because I I, I, one of the people I discussed this with was an amazing woman called Dr Nadine Burke Harris um, who's now the Surgeon General of California incredibly a a really remarkable person who's written really well about herself her, her mother had schizophrenia uh and she's written about this i actually would put it i think that the way you put it is um lots of people would have reacted that way and i'm sure there were elements of both those things in how i kind of metabolized the situation but nadine talks a lot about the positive things that can come from childhood trauma and i think for me i think those negative things you just said of course are there for me, I think it was a very early lesson of you're going to have to learn to solve problems on your own or you're going to have to learn how to find solutions through others. It, and, you know, I was, thinking, I was thinking about this the other day. I think one of the most profound differences between human beings, this is a pretentious way of putting it, is people who believe that there is an underlying order to the universe and people who believe that the world is essentially arbitrary. And there's sometimes people will say, there's a sentence, uh, it's probably the most commonly said sentence that I find most baffling, is when people say things like, it'll work itself out, right? Or I, I would give you a trivial example, but I have a friend who's a writer who recently wrote a book, and I was giving my friend lots of tips on it. This is how to maximise the chances of your book reaching an audience. And my friend said, 
well, if it's a good book, it'll do well. And I, and I said, well, let, let's analyse the underlying premise there. The underlying premise is the world is Justice. just and, yeah. <laughs> and good Fair. things happen and to good, good people. people. <laughs> As, you might want to ask the children of Syria how that's working out for them, right? I, I found it almost literally mad. And I understand, of course, it's my friend's way of reassuring himself and so on. But, but, but there was never any part of me that felt that way. There was never any part of me that thought... Just trust that the world will the world will treat you well, and uh, and it's not that I don't believe in justice, but the world will be as just as you make it, and not one inch more. It's one of the few things Martin Luther King ever said that I don't agree with. He said, you know, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. No, the arc of the universe can be bent towards justice, but it doesn't. There's no guarantee. We are an arbitrarily evolved species on a rock in space, right? Do not assume there is any underlying movement Plan. towards justice. Yeah. Exactly. And it's just a really deep difference between human beings. But can I pause you? Because I can hear mm. how passionate you feel about that. And it gives me an underlying question. So how, how has that worked out for you? So learning at such a young age that I've got to find the answers for myself. I've got to look after myself. What have you learned? How do you look after yourself? Has that worked for you? I think what it did, and there were all sorts of problems that came from having the challenges that I had as a child. I'm not um, belittling those problems or, or undermining them, but I think, I think one of the things if you're not given stories as a child about why things are happening, so you're growing up with sort of sources of chaos and disorder and no stories about them. And a lot of absence by the sounds yeah. of things. Yeah, I think you, you then... I think it made... In my case, I think it made me good at telling stories. Even if I think about something as basic, much more, much more basic and less problematic than the addiction that was in my family, which is that... Both my parents were immigrants, right? My, I mean, it might sound odd to say about my mother, but my, my dad was from the Swiss mountains. And when I was a child, didn't even speak particularly good English. And my mother was from Scotland and she very much regards living in England as uh, uh, being in a foreign country. Um, and just things as basic as, you know, my parents were both from, you know, poor families. You know, my dad grew up in a, a wooden hut on the side of a Swiss mountain. My mother grew up in a Scottish tenement. And by the time they, because they worked unbelievably hard, you know, by the time I was a kid, they were living in sort of middle class, Edgware, not very far from where we are now, you know, so middle class England. And I was very aware that my parents didn't have, were lacking stories that I could see about the place we lived. Even saying, this, this is a, might sound like an odd example, but I remember one time when I must have been five or six, I was in the supermarket with my dad and the bill was, whatever it was, 50 pounds and 60p. And he tried to haggle over the 60p. <laughs> not knowing you can't haggle in a supermarket. No, Sainsbury's not... aren't interested. Exactly. No. That you can't barter with Sainsbury's, right? And, and uh, in fact, it was the Safeway in Stanbury. Okay. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> yeah. the, but, you know, so I think it's that thing about... The reason I think about it in relation to your question, Julia, is you, you get this... Um, I realised, because I wasn't being given stories about why my environment was the way it was, and because at a very young age I realised, oh, I can see how some of these things work in a way my parents couldn't, I never had, 
I think I was I, obviously it's a key cha- key key phase of child development for everyone, which is realizing their parents aren't omniscient. And I think I had that very early. Did, <laughs> I, yes. You know, like I, I think at an unusually early stage of child development, I did not have. Although my parents have many, many positive qualities, they, I, I never believed that they were going to make the world right. Or, you know, so, so I think that that gives you a very. Did you parent them? No, no, they didn't. No. They, I didn't actually. They didn't. They didn't. Um, no, I didn't do that. But. I, I, I do think it gave me a sense of, okay, you're going to have to figure out how things work. You're going to have to tell your own stories and you're going to have to solve your own problems. And I think that was uh, difficult and challenging, but I also think it has given me some strengths later in life. You are telling your own stories and you are facing your challenges. Um, so you travelled, I mean, you must have travelled hundreds of thousands of miles Um to find the stories, to try and make sense of the world through people's stories, through understanding, both with addiction and um, with depression. And in fact, both of them, and I completely agree with you, they came to the conclusion that they both come from pain, that, you know, when someone's an addict, it's not, you know, why are you addicted? It's what's hurting, you know, why, you know, what's, where is the source of the pain and addiction the same? Um, but I also felt you travelling all those miles you must have been so lonely you know it's funny you say that you're, you're not the first person to talk to me Julia I honestly wasn't and I think it's partly because I was meeting the most incredible people Yeah. if I think about for example someone I've been thinking about a lot in the last few days because someone contacted me about him, but possibly the most admirable person I've ever met. So Bud Osborne was a a homeless guy with an addiction problem in Vancouver who started a movement of the local people with addiction problems that um, led to the opening of the first safe injection site in North America, which massively reduced the death toll and then led change the entire drug laws of Canada. One, One person can change the world, right? Exactly. And... No, I didn't feel lonely because I was meeting incredible people everywhere I went. I think about the people I've got to know, like for that book, Chasing the Screen, you know, we mentioned Billie Holiday's friends, like my friend Chilo Hardin, who's a trans crack dealer in Brooklyn, former crack dealer, who I got to know over three years, who's one of the funniest, wisest people I've ever met from, if I think about the people I met in, in Juarez, in, in northern Mexico, who was so brave, um, the women I met in prison in Arizona, I just so many people and they live in you so it feels like even if you may not be connected to them now that the connection you had was so meaningful that they still live in you that they still they're part of you you carry them through your day I found it yeah I found it incredibly generative I found it incredibly life-giving to to get to know them and I'm still in touch with a lot of them actually and 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 yeah they they they, they, well, they deeply reshaped how I think about the world, and and yourself. Oh, completely. Well, it changed how I understood my own family's addiction. It changed how I, uh, well, for, for lost connections, which is about depression, which is a problem I'd had. Um, it completely changed how I thought about depression, and how I how I now 
solve it in myself. Um, so, yeah, I mean, such a deep... Um, yeah, they, they, they completely changed my life. And uh, they changed my life both by their kind of example of how to live. And so many of these people I got to know, they, they just, they, they knew how to live. Yeah. Billie Holiday knew how to live, my God. Although, of course, I didn't meet her. Um, yeah, th- both through their, partly through their example, partly through just moments with them, partly through, and, and with other people I'm writing about now, partly through and partly through their arguments and insights and i would say that all those those are very interconnected i don't really think of the insights as separate from the the person the narratives yeah exactly so it's the you know like looking at our parents we learn about the world from what they model not from what they say and it sounds like from these incredibly inspirational, extraordinary people from very surprising places, that's what's fantastic about your books, is that they're not the kind of normal speakers, as it were. You find fascinating people who normally, normally often don't have a voice. Um, but how they lived their life modelled for you ways that you could live your life and also gave you an understanding of how to change yourself. So when you said, you know, you were challenged with depression and, and there's a quote that you have that you were, a, were you a fat boy that, that was depressed eating Nando's? <laughs> well, many fried chicken. Uh, I, funny enough, I wouldn't say the weight was the, the weight was a symptom of other things, but uh, mostly actually I'm taking antidepressants because that's what I put on a lot of weight. But the, um, yeah, I've had a, um, uh, many a fried chicken uh, emporium has, <laughs> is familiar with my face. So I really want to know your change in yourself from you that you that has changed because I think people listening you know a lot of us one in four people has some kind of mental I mean we all have mental health and it's on a spectrum clearly that you know we we're at one end or the other Um, but I think one in four people would now say they have a mental health condition at the moment and which has of course got worse during um, lockdown so if they're wanting to hear from you personally the insights that you learn to help you with your depression, what do you do? What what helps you? So I'm, I always try to preface answering this question by saying um, a couple of things. So firstly, for something as complex as, you know, human pain, despair, the problems we're talking about... Um, be very wary of anyone who presented one solution as applying to everyone, right? This is an extraordinarily complex there's no, thing. There's no one one panacea for all else. No. Exactly. And, and actually, what I learned for Lost Connections is, is there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety, and we, we need to deal with, which will occur in different people in different ratios. Um, so firstly, I would say that, that it's a complex phenomenon. What applies to me will not apply to lots of people. I think the most personal is the most universal. I think that's yeah. I think that's an important insight. Again, that's about modelling, isn't it? Rather than Mm. the argument. But I would say, secondly, that I was in a very lucky, incredibly lucky position in that um, I could change my life because I had money, you know, and uh, because of my first book doing well. And a big part of what I, I argue in Lost Connections is. We need to change our society so that more people are set free to make the changes they want to make. I have relatives, you know, I think about one of my closest relatives who's a struggling single mother who works every hour she can. And actually her margin 
for changing her life is much, much smaller than the margins I had for changing my life. And, and if there are social changes we can make that would free her up to make a lot more of the changes that she wants, wants to make. But I would say, with both those important caveats, for me, one of the most important one of the most important insights I gained was to realise that you, your pain makes sense. Mm. And that might sound odd, but I think the way we have talked about mental health in our culture has disconnected a lot of people from the meaning of their pain. So when I was a teenager and I went to my doctor and I'd had this very challenging childhood that we've touched on with quite a lot of violence and addiction and, and you know, very disturbing things. I remember going to my doctor when I was a teenager and saying, you know, that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. And my oh. doctor told me a story that I now realised was very well-intentioned. My doctor was a very nice person, but was... was oversimplified to the point where I think it was harmful so my doctor said well we know why people feel like this some people just have something wrong with their brains you're clearly what she never asked me is there any reason you might feel this way um very common in the 90s still common now uh and it's not the fault of the doctor and we can come to that she said um you know some people just have a problem with their brains all we need to do is give you some drugs and you're going to be fine so in- I started taking- increase your serotonin Exactly. We now know there's not even any evidence that depression correlates with low serotonin levels. Yeah. Um, incredibly. But so, so my doctor gave me a, a drug called Siroxat, uh, and I did feel significantly better uh, for a while, for a few months. Then this feeling started to come back, so I was given a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the feeling got, wor- feeling got worse. And I was in this cycle until for 13 years I was taking the maximum possible dose that you're allowed to take. Um, and, I, and I want to stress, because this is often misrepresented, uh, I mean, frankly lied about, because as you know, I, in my book, I'm very clear on this. Um, I am, chemical antidepressants give some relief to some people and have real value. And anyone listening to this who's taking them, if for you the side effect, the, the benefits outweigh the side effects, and there are many people in that position, my advice is to carry on taking them. But I don't have an issue with chemical antidepressants. I have an issue with that oversimplified story that is told to people where you're told this is purely a biological malfunction and all we need to do is fix it at a biological level. Because that is not what the leading scientists in the world say. That's not what we all intuitively know to be true. And that story can divorce people from exploring and understanding the deeper causes of their pain. And more importantly, it can divorce us. I would say it has divorced our society and culture from understanding the deeper causes of depression and anxiety. I'll give you two very quick, obvious examples. There's been a massive increase in loneliness. Loneliness causes depression and anxiety. Clearly part of the problem is to deal with that deeper loneliness. And early death. Exactly. And secondly, financial insecurity causes depression and anxiety. There are all sorts of ways we can deal with financial insecurity, uh, politically, through... through Structural changes, Exactly. But, and, and, and again, I remember when I wrote Lost Connections, this was responded to in a way I found, frankly, shocking, as if these ideas were extremely controversial, right? I, mean, I was literally told, I, I, I remember the night before the book came out, uh, talking to a friend about this and, and saying, uh, um, just being amazed that the book was being reacted to as if it was controversial, when none of these ideas would have been controversial to my grandmother or your grandmother. And yet, under COVID, what we've seen is, a massive increase in depression and anxiety, right? What happened? It's not that people's brains spontaneously malfunctioned mysteriously at the same time as the pandemic. It's that we're afraid of the virus, very sensible. 
We're more financially insecure, that makes us depressed and anxious. We're much lonelier, that makes us depressed and anxious. We're, interviewing, in, we're, we're interacting with each other through screens all the time, that makes us more depressed and anxious. The, the, the environment changed and therefore we became more depressed and anxious. And clearly the solution is in further environmental change, right? We will emerge from this pandemic. That tells us something about why we're depressed under COVID, but it also should tell us something about why depression and anxiety were rising for 30 years prior to the pandemic. Um, yeah, so I'd say that a kind of overarching thing is to say to people, your pain makes sense. You feel this way Listen for reasons. To it. Yeah. Exactly, you need your pain, right? Yeah, uh, you, you're, it's you're, a signal. It's, it's, a, it's an emotional signal telling you something isn't working. Pay attention, look at yourself. Don't avoid yourself, don't distract yourself. Don't try and block it. Don't take medication to block it unless sometimes, as you say, it works. But I mean, that I completely I've been shouting that for like 30 years. <laughs> I don't think anyone's <laughs> listened to me. I think they have listened to you. C can I take you um, to the kind of major living loss in your life? So if, if if the first one, which was actually significant and certainly influenced your life, was was that the one when the, the trying to wake up the addict is that yeah, the first would, living loss yeah i would say my major living losses i would i'd say there's i mean i've had many but um what's the most significant i would say there's two that i would name as the most significant um one what i've noticed this with lots of people who grow up in uh somewhat chaotic circumstances it's also related to the fact that i'm gay and the the, the, the circumstances at the time I mean, it's an incredible piece of progress that this is not true of gay teenagers now, most gay teenagers in Britain. I think I think one of the biggest living losses I experienced, one of the ones that most that I found hardest to metabolise was the first time I fell in love was when I was 17. Um, and it was extraordinarily intense in the way that teenage love can be. Um, and I think particularly... Makes me tingle remembering. <laughs> and I, very long time ago in my case. <laughs> Not so long, Julia. Yeah. Uh, and, and, it, and it lasted a while and then it ended as almost all teenage romances do. I took it unusually badly. I found it really painful. And I think it was for a couple of reasons. Firstly, uh, there's a thing about, you know, and I was actually very lucky in terms of um, being gay in that... Um, you know, I, I did not experience a great deal of homophobia in my life, um, and my parents were fine on that question. Um, but I think there's a thing about if you were a gay kid growing up in that environment, you didn't have the expectations around romantic love that a gay teenager would have now, right? You, you, gay, gay kids now have grown up seeing gay couples on television, knowing they get married. I remember... I, I remember very, there was nothing. There was no. There was no depiction of romantic love for gay people that I ever saw. I mean, I, I guess there was didn't exist. I don't think, but barely, maybe somewhere, but not not mainstream. Yeah, I all. mean, EastEnders would, was an honourable exception. I remember that being actually having a very strong effect on me. But the the it made front page news too when it did it. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, well, the Sun front page was it's Eastbenders. I mean, it's a sign of the incredible prog- progress we've made that now if the craziest UKIP councillor tweeted that, he'd have to resign, right? That was the front page of the best-selling Thank newspaper God. in Britain. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the scale of the progress we've made on... on. In fact, I do think the single biggest thing I took from being gay was a deep sense of optimism about how things can change, right? The world has gotten unimaginably better. Nick, I need... You're going to happy. I haven't... I pause you. You, <laughs> you, you always want us to take a lesson. Let me take you back. So there was that moment, you were madly in love, you were 17 years old, you were gay, which was then kind of not really spoken about, not really seen, but you didn't experience homophobia. And it went very deeply. And your experience of it was? Well, I think the other thing that was so intoxicating about it is having had, I had had some very... um, stable models of love like my grandmother who was an incredible person but the I think uh how would I put it that so it was this sense of like discovering a romantic possibility and a sense of like deep kind of stability and then that ending as you know almost inevitably would and I think then like like where we started that kind of cauterization that we talked about that, you, that a lot of um, people who have addiction in their family experience if it happens to them when they're young that I, I took that really badly like it was really painful and really r- really awful actually uh, and that's when I went to my doctor and um, uh, started taking chemical antidepressants it's so painful that isn't it that first ending and actually it it does it is formative, your first love and your first breakup, isn't it? I mean, I think it influences your relation, like everything does, it influences your relationship going forward. And it really sounds so hard. I, think, I mean, it was very prosaic in the sense that it's nothing that hasn't happened to everyone else watching this, right? I just think it's the, the context. I, I think there was a thing about... Um, not I think I think it was very very painful and I think uh I think I took for many years the wrong lessons from that loss um in a funny way that I think I probably took good lessons from my loss as a child actually that that when I was much younger uh, I think that second loss was much harder and I didn't really uh, I think it led to a kind of further emotional cauterization that took a good few years to overcome. Um, and again, I, th- I think I took the long lesson, which is, you know, I, I sort of believed the overly simplified biomedical narrative about my pain, which is instead of kind of grieving normally for that loss, which is... I sort of went into much more this narrative of, oh, there's something wrong with your brain, you need to drug yourself, um, and all of that. Um, and I, I do think that was harmful. And I do think we need to stop, you know... Now, it's important to stress there are some biological contributions to depression and anxiety. Your genes can make you more sensitive to these problems, though mm. they don't write your destiny. And there are... Um, there are real changes that happen in your brain when you become depressed that can make it harder to get out. But 
but telling an exclusively biological story about this is harmful. It's not true, and we shouldn't tell people things that aren't true. And it cuts them off from the deeper sources of their pain in ways that are really, um, really destructive, actually. And we need to tell a more truthful story about depression and anxiety. I completely agree. And as I was listening to your incredibly powerful and moving experience of your first breakup, I was thinking of it, you said your context makes a difference. And I was thinking, you know, when I assess someone when when I'm hypothesizing in our first session about the level of the loss and what they're going through, whether it's a living loss or it's a death, there are many aspects I look at. I look at the emotional investment in the relationship. So was this the most important relationship in someone's life? Because if it was, then that's an enormous level of loss. I look at their personality type. What type of person are they? You know, are they, do they naturally optimistic? Do they, you know, what are their tendencies? I look at the circumstances of the ending. Like a bad breakup, how someone ends with you has a dramatic effect on how you manage it. If someone just, you know, being ghosted, for instance, I think is the is this new modern, absolutely horrific way of ending relationships. And then the biggest one, which you very much totally reiterate in your book, is the single biggest predictor of your outcomes after a loss is the love and connection to others. And so when I'm hearing your story of you 17 years old, without that much safety and secure attachment, love and connection at home, and your first experience of being a kind of young man in the world and finding your sexual identity, your male identity, your near adult identity. And then that ends without the context of the support and all the other things I've just said. That is utterly crushing. Yeah, I think you put that really well. And I think there's, um, if you, if you, you know, if you, if you're in a nest of things that give you a sense of self-esteem and a sense of security and stability in the world, then losing one aspect is painful, but it's not devastating. Whereas if you're sort of... Um, alone, you're fragile. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wouldn't want to overstate it. I wasn't totally alone. I had a, no. you know, but, 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 but yeah, it, it, it was very, very difficult. Uh, surprisingly difficult when I look back on it. So I think that that living loss, you know, looking back, I can see there are positive lessons I could have learned from that about, you know, one of my favourite films. Have you ever seen the film Harold and Maud? Yes, great uh, film. For people who don't know, the, this will sound like a weird um, analogy to myself, but the there's a line in it that I'm thinking of in particular. The So Harold and Maud is one of the greatest films ever made. I think it's an extremely <laughs> weird black comedy. Johan is one who had, doesn't have extreme feelings about things. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Um, it's the story of a suicidal 17-year-old boy who falls in love with an 80-year-old Holocaust survivor. And it's about this very intense week in their life. And um, <laughs> famously, like, massively grossed people out when it came out, but has subsequently become a kind of big cult film. But there's a, a line at the end of the film, and I don't want yeah. to give a spoiler, so I'm trying to think how I can say this without ruining it. But there's a line, I think I can say this without ruining it. Um, there's a line at the end where they're, you, you realise they're not they're going to part, which I suppose <laughs> is implicit in the premise of the film anyway. And... Um, he says, Harold says to Maud, but I love you. And she says, that's wonderful. Now go out and love some more. Yeah. And the lesson, 
that I should have taken from it, and I do now take from that experience when I was a teenager, is the experience of love that ends is, that's amazing. You get to go and love someone else yeah. now, right? Um, but that's not the lesson I took no. from it then. Or it's not the lesson I took for many years, but it is the lesson I take now when I look back on it. Funny enough, Harold and Maud was my favourite film then, so at some level I was you were listening. looking for that yeah. lesson. <laughs> so you said I've had one or two major living losses. Can, is there another one that comes to mind? Yeah, my, my, um, so I was basically raised by my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who, who was Scottish, who'd had, um, who was a completely amazing woman. Amy McRae was her name. She, um, my grandmother had a very Such hard... a good name. I can sort ah. of see her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she, she was a, a brilliant person, my grandmother. And she, you know, my grandmother had a very hard life. She left school when she was 13 to go and work in a laundry. She, her husband died when she was very young. So she was left with three children um, who she raised on her own. She cleaned toilets. She did every job she could. So my grandmother had a, a hard, hard life. Um, Poof, that really is so... I mean, I can't imagine leaving school at 13, living that. I mean, I mean, both my grandmothers had incredibly hard life. My Swiss grandmother, you know, my, my Swiss grandmother left school when she was very young. She didn't even... She didn't get the vote until she was older than I am now. Switzerland was so uh, backward but on women's rights. But my, my, so my, my, my Scottish grandmother, when she was... Uh, when I was... Uh, 20 and she was um, 80 she was nearly 80 she was my, my sister had just had a baby my nephew Josh and she didn't have any money my sister and my grandmother who never had any money was went to post her some money uh, like 10 pounds out of her pension or whatever it had been, and she got hit by a car oh, no. she got thrown over the car and um, when the ambulance arrived and she'd literally been thrown over a car Shit. my grandmother said to the the ambulance guy oh will you put this letter in the envelope because my granddaughter really needs the money oh my so my, God. Grand, my, my sister got this kind of blood spattered envelope oh. a few days later but and I thought it was incredibly revealing about my grandmother she's hit by a car and the first thing she's it's other people is somebody else yeah. but she so anyway she she recovered so when I went I obviously went to the hospital straight away but my grandmother so the, the, the doctor said to me look you're a young man and if you were hit by a car in this way you would probably die so you know you make be that prepared yeah exactly and she made a full physical recovery my grandmother was unbelievably hardy but she developed dementia quite quickly after that uh. related to the i'm sure related to the head injury because she didn't have anything wrong with her before that and um i think dementia is a particularly terrible kind of loss it is the person is don't you think I mean, how would you describe that kind of loss julia it's i would say that's definitely a living loss because grief starts at the point of diagnosis so at the point that you knew that she was no longer the grandmother you'd had before at that moment and as she as her dementia deteriorated every day there was an incremental level of loss where she kind of faded from you so she was physically present but psychologically not present at all and so that's a I mean that's almost the sort of personification of a living loss isn't it where you feel all the experience of grief where you feel scared and angry and frozen and confused and powerless and furious and and you and there's nothing you can do the only thing you can do is love her and sit with her and do what you can to support her but you can't this isn't fixable and that's agony yeah I think you put that brilliantly and she I mean it's a terrible thing because you are grieving for someone who is not dead 
who is alive. And I think it was particularly terrible because she was so... She had a form of dementia called Lewy body disease, um, where she was just extremely distressed a lot of the time. She was very frightened. She was... You know, there's a theory that Shakespeare knew someone who had Lewy body disease and that King Lear is modelled on that person. and Because it, 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 King Lear's behaviour so matches the symptoms of Lewy body disease. So incredible anger, fear... Um, so that was incredible. Incredible because she was so a different woman. I mean, she was a different woman. She was not your grandmother. Yeah, she was very distraught. And she had been a very private and reserved person, and she became very disinhibited. And it 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 was it was really terrible. It's funny if I think about my grand my Swiss grandfather had dementia, but his dementia was a very kind of gentle dementia. He basically he lived also lived to be ninety one, but. About three years before he died, he just stopped talking, you know, and just just and never spoke yeah. again. Sort of shut and, down. Um, yeah, and that's was not yeah. pleasant, of course. But it, he didn't he didn't he didn't seem at all distressed. He was, in fact, he seemed less distressed than he'd ever been in his life, you know. Whereas for my Scottish grandmother, my maternal grandmother, she was in in terrible pain and distress, and that was an extremely difficult thing to see there was of course missing her as a person but there was also um uh her a distress that you can't assuage which was really hard i mean there were ways to assuage it and even when it was quite a value you know she she just very basic thing is like she loved prawns Mm. you could bring her prawns and feed them to her and she would calm down and she would be happy or there were so there were always things that could reassure her, but um, but yeah, that was very painful. It sounds incredibly painful. And the thing, when I've worked with people who um, love someone with a with a with a diagnosis, whether it's you know stage four cancer and they know they're going to die, or dementia, or you know whatever the condition is where you. You, it's a life-limiting, life-threatening condition that they're, they're going to die over time and you lose them as they were. The complexity of it is that while they're ill, there's a part of the person that sort of wants it over. You know, I, I'm not sure I can do much more of this or I can't, I'm not sure I can stand much more of this. And then the terrible guilt, the stabbing guilt, like I'm a terrible person. How could I think this about my grandmother or my husband or whoever it is? I can't want them dead, but also the kind of magical thinking that if I w- wish them dead, then maybe they'll die, and then maybe I've killed them. And so it, it's for, so for the whole family, there's this kind of complex relationship which is completely altered at the moment they they get ill, which is I think very unrecognised how traumatic that is. I think you. I think it's really. I think that's really insightful. I'm just thinking about what you're saying because there's lots of things in that. I think you're totally right. I mean, I've been. Obviously, during COVID and this horrendous period where people can't go and see the people they love in old people's homes, I've been really glad my grandmother died before that because that would have been horrific. She would not have been able to understand horrendous. why we weren't there, and she would. And in fact, one of the paranoid fears she often had was that she had been abandoned, um, and so that for her to have actually been abandoned would have been beyond horrendous. So I'm glad that, and, and she actually, you know, she lived to be. 1991 and she, she she just in the end she just stopped eating she just refused to let them feed her 
and it took her several months to die after that but she just she just wouldn't eat and and i feel like in a way she made the decision yeah yeah, it was the last decision available to her yeah was this ain't worth it and and she would not have exactly my appetite for life is over I interrupted exactly. you about four times there. No, no, no. You're absolutely. I think you've put it really well. My appetite for life is over. That's a brilliant way of putting it. And and you know she had a very. She would have been proud of the life. She, I know she was proud of the life she had. She would never have talked in those terms. She wasn't that kind of person. But she. Uh, she had a she had a really good life. My grandmother. She she. Treated. She behaved incredibly decently. She treated people well. She never harmed anyone. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I just, I just, obviously the regret there is not that my grandmother died. There's nothing more natural than a grandson outlives his grandmother. But the regret is that those, those last 10 years of her life could have been different, you know, and, uh, that's, that's, that's very painful. Yeah, that really is painful. And it's like, all of us look at them and I think, oh God, I don't want that to be me. And it's likely, isn't it? You know, if we're going to live longer, we're more likely to have dementia. It's literally my, it, that. That is the to, your worst yeah, nightmare for your consciousness to persist, but your capacity to tell stories and understand the world to go. That that's almost like the I, I the, literally the worst possible scenario for me. My primary coping mechanism for being alive. It, you know, this is a great phrase Michael Oakeshott, the conservative philosopher, uses. I don't agree with him on anything, but he said um, he talks about the ordeal of consciousness, which I think is a great phrase. And, uh, and the way we deal with the ordeal, the way I deal with the ordeal of consciousness, people have different methods, is to tell stories, to figure out how things work, and to be deprived of the capacity to do that, or even worse, with something like Louis Body dementia to become trapped in stories that are not true and are terrifying that's literally the worst thing i can conceive of no i agree so i've got i've got literally about 15 things going on the top of my screen and i'm gonna and we haven't got so much time so i'm just gonna have to choose one of them rather than all of them um and i guess it's to do with addiction so i come from um a family of addicts and one of the things that makes me really profoundly sad is that the, I, as I look now with the knowledge I have now that I certainly never had um, in my 20s and 30s or even 40s, that the root of the addiction in, in my family and often in addiction, in addiction is transgenerational, which it, it was in mine, is trauma. You know, 70% of traumatized people are, are also addicts, 73%. And also 50 to 60% of, of alcoholism or addiction is genetic. So it's behavioral and environmental, but also transgenerational trauma going through the generations. What hasn't been resolved or processed in one generation transfers to the next generation. And I still... I mean, you're a campaigner. I think you're really basically a, a, a politician, Monke, and I think that is going to be your next life, by the way, because that is what you do. I mean, I've listened to you quite a lot, and you are a massive campaigner for justice and for so many issues. But the thing that I... It really breaks my heart, the ignorance around addiction, trauma, mental health, and I know that you've... I mean, you've got 500 pages and 25 million hits on head talks to to talk about this but 
Um, I just wanted to know what you think. No, you're totally right. The, the tragedy is that we're trapped in a story about addiction that makes the problem worse. So we have two dominant stories about addiction, I think. One is that it's a moral failing. The person party too hard, they indulge. It's weak. Yeah, you're weak. You're failed. Exactly. It's disgusting. Yeah, comes back to where we were. With and kick them. Yeah. Exactly. Ugh. So there's, there's, that, there's that story. And then there's the story, which is the drug did this to them, right? The, uh, the fancy term is the chemical hooks theory of addiction. Um, so, you know, the drug took you over and, you know, we need to get rid of the drug, right? And I think, uh, and I can talk about that more if you want, but the, 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 and I think there's a third story, which you're talking to, which is, in fact, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And the addiction is an attempt to solve that problem. It's not a good solution. Anesthetize the pain. Exactly. No. It's, it's for all sorts of reasons. Working. It's not a great solution. For many people, it's the only, it's the best solution they've been offered. Um, and, and actually, these stories we tell, uh, the, the full stories we tell, make it worse, right? And there are, in fact, solutions to this. Um, I went to Portugal for Chasing the Screen. In the year 2000, Portugal had the worst drug problem in the world. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. They tried shame and stigma more and more. They arrested more people. They imprisoned more people. They indulged in the <clears throat> absurd fantasy that we can get rid of drugs when there's never been a human society where they didn't have drugs. Um, and every year the problem got worse. And then finally they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know named Dr. Joao Goulao. And they said to them, you know, you guys go away look at the best science, we've agreed in advance, we'll do whatever you recommend. And the panel came back and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to crack, everything. But, and this is the crucial next step, we're going to take all the money we used to spend on shaming and humiliating people, arresting them, imprisoning them, and we're going to spend all that money instead on turning their lives around. And it was a combination of therapy, job creation, housing, uh, and the goal was to say to everyone in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. And by the time I went to Portugal, this had been in place for 13 years, it's now 17 years, um, and the results were very clear. Portugal went from having the worst drug problem in the world to being the bottom of the European Union league tables for overdose addiction, um, the bottom two, overdose addiction, all problems related to transformative drugs. properly the, transformative the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection and anything that increases connection love reduces addiction anything that cuts people off humiliates them stigmatizes them deepens their pain increases it. deepens their addiction and and the spiral exactly yeah. at some point you know for a hundred years we've been singing war songs about people with addiction problems when we should have been singing love songs to them all along and at some point and, and and this has already begun right even if you think about a very trivial example we mentioned EastEnders before and the gay thing I think I was saying as simple as you can see the transformation of the culture if you look at the depiction of people with addiction problems in EastEnders so when I was a kid there, there were characters who were evil addicts Nick Cotton is one of the characters people are thinking about Doc Cotton Sum who was marked in the show as evil because he was a drug user and because he was addicted, right? 
Um, to the point where actually in the show, the sympathetic characters literally lock him in a room while he goes through withdrawal and don't let him and chain him up, right? Today, there, it would be inconceivable that Coronation Street or EastEnders would have an evil addict character who would be coded as evil because they had an addiction problem. Now, it, it just wouldn't even occur to the scriptwriters to do that because we've had a, already had a transformation and humanising move when it comes to people with addiction problems. We've already cut, you know, we've got a long way to go, not least in changing our drug laws, which still shame and punish people yeah. and give them criminal records and imprison them. But we've, we're, we're part already of a transformation in consciousness that is continuing. Um, and so, like I say, I, I'm very optimistic about this. You know, I mean, it's very frustrating because every day we're not doing the maximum compassion we are condemning some people to die and others to have unnecessarily limited lives. But we are moving in the, <clears throat> in the right direction. You know, compare, right back when we started, compare how Billie Holiday was treated. People are still treated like that in the United States and to a lesser degree in Britain. But very few people, I think, will watch our film about Billie Holiday and not think, I think very few will watch that and think, well, she deserved it, she was an addict, right? I think even quite right-wing people who, you know, are quite hostile to many of the things I say won't think that, right? And that is a humanising response. Most people at the time, it wasn't hidden what they did to Billie Holiday, most of it, right? Um, most people supported it then. They don't support it now. We're part of a big humanising yeah, transformation. So there is change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, I mean, the scale of the positive changes that we've lived through, there's some negative changes, but incredible positive changes that have happened in our lifetimes... They happen because people demand them and fight for them and they don't give up, even when it's hard. And we've got to carry on doing that. And you're certainly one of the people fighting for that. Um, as an ending, I guess, you are hopeful and optimistic. You're an explorer and a challenger and an activist and a writer. And I want to bring it back. I want to end bringing it back to you. Um from all that you've said, what is the message you give to yourself? So you wake up in the morning and you tell yourself something kind of personal about yourself going forward. Is there a personal... I hope this doesn't sound like a deflection. I would tell you a story about someone else that I would tell myself. No, I will not going to accept a story well, about that... someone else. That is totally a deflection. <laughs> this has to be you. What I... I would think about the example of... Can I tell you one story about someone else that then the lesson I take... No! From, no! 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 Uh, I don't... I, 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 would, I would... I would say... Get on with your work and listen to other people. <laughs> you know, like... I, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't... But that's a lovely thing. I would, but I would, I would... Get on with your work and listen to other people. I would... I, can I add something for you? Yeah. <laughs> If I was your therapist, I would, <laughs> I would say um, something about you do you do give yourself voice, but it, it feels your your tendency is always to tell other people's stories, and I'm sure you're doing it on a public podcast. This is what you do, and I don't know in your own life whether you do this, but my kind of feeling with you is that. I want to kind of know you under the skin you. And it's sometimes hard navigating that through other people's stories. And it's a bit of a chimera. So I can't always 
So you're so interesting and you're so clever and you have such a big heart. And I kind of want to get to you sometimes. And I, I have got it. I feel like we've connected. It's felt like a really lovely conversation. But also sometimes I've wanted to kind of bat away the story and hear more about Johan. I think, I think a lot about how you can make... I was in Russia this time last year, almost exactly this time last year. It was just under the wire uh, in terms of COVID. And I, I went to interview this guy called Dmitry Leontiev, who's one of the uh, leading psychologists in Russia. His grandfather was a super famous psychologist under Stalin, weirdly. And we were talking about, he said, you know the difference between British and American philosophy and Russian philosophy. And he said, um, when, when we look at how British and American people talk about happiness being the goal of life, we just laugh, right? We're Russians. We don't believe happiness is the goal of life. Happiness is a child's goal, right? Happiness is a good goal for a three-year-old child. It's not a good goal for an adult human being. He said, we think life is about meaning. Right? Life is about pursuing meaning. And if you have meaning, you can get through a lot of pain. It's true. Right? It's a tendency of resilience. I, I, I think it's... And I think about... Please bring this back to yourself. Well, I think about with... I, I really <laughs> want to tell you this story about someone else, but the... the uh, no! <laughs> you are not allowed to tell a story about someone okay, else. Well, I cannot well, believe I, how hard that I, is I, to stop you doing it. I guess it. I would th- what I would say is... When you experience pain, try to think about how can you make this meaningful? How can you build something out of it? Not how can you get away from the pain, and this is how can you suppress it, how can you bury it, how can you numb yourself to it? What is the use of this pain, right? We talked about pain as a signal before depression and anxiety as signals, not malfunctions, right? We've been taught to think our depression and anxiety are malfunctions when they are signals. and for me, I, th- I guess one thing has been useful to me is to think about, okay, if you feel this pain, what can you do with that? How can you use this pain to some wider system of meaning to make someone else's life? Even when you feel like shit yourself, you can almost always make someone else feel better. And then you feel right? better. And then you feel better. But, but if you become trapped in your story, um, if you become trapped in a story about yourself, where you can't, that, that's just misery. That's just despair, right? But you can get growth from pain, post-traumatic growth. Exactly, exactly. Hooray. We got there. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm sorry we've come to an end. That was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so, so much. It's a, I hope we talk again. I hope I see you another time. I would love that. And I've really enjoyed this, Julia, and I really admire the work you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for seeing you. And good luck with your new book, which I I want you to tell me about as soon as you, as soon as it's out. Hooray. I will, I promise. Brilliant. Cheers, Julia. Lovely seeing you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. So that was a rollercoaster ride with Johan he's got so much to say and I could feel the words kind of pouring towards me and um, fascinating and interesting and and I kind of wanted to go whoa stop a sec hang on let me grab hold of that or let me understand that and so it was really fun and he thinks so deeply and he minds so passionately But I think there was a lot in it that was very powerful and immensely touching, his 17-year-old breakup. And I felt very 
moved that he shared that with us and I think people listening all of us have had a version of that and know what that's like um, so that felt very kind of powerful and moving and you know that formative experience of being five and not being able to wake up a member of his family you know that really that and that thing that he talks about of um, cauterized being cauterized and of course that's the first route to depression it's you know when you shut down your feelings you turn against your feelings and you shut them in against yourself is the kind of root of depression so he learnt that so young and I hope for people listening that they kind of cast their minds back to those formative times in their life and they try and kind of look at an image of something that troubled them you know and freeze frame that image and ask themselves what was what was my experience of that what did I feel and what belief did that give me about myself and do I still hold on to that belief now is it still useful in my life or is it a belief that I can change that I can I can sort of bin it and discover a new belief about myself and I think that was what was clear with him despite his very difficult beginnings and there's a, a measure of someone's childhood there's something called the adverse childhood experience which predicts terrible outcomes and he would have marked very high on the on the um, ACE um, so he's done an amazing job in keeping himself on track given his roots um, and and certainly sort of socially social mobility you know, from a grandmother who left school at 15, another grandmother who left school at 13, went to Cambridge and got a double first. That in itself is pretty extraordinary um, to witness. So, I mean, I'm very impressed by him. And But I'd some part of me wants to sit him down and tell him he can only speak one word every five seconds and see what would happen. Um, because sometimes people speak fast to block their feelings and so when I work with people I try and slow them down so that they connect with their feelings so I think his message you know I completely echo it and we both say it in our books in very different ways and I hope that people listening kind of look at this for themselves as well which is that if you're suffering something is going on and that your pain is a signal it's a wake-up call that something isn't working maybe it's your job maybe it's your relationship maybe it's where you're living maybe it's your relationship with yourself maybe who knows it can be endless reasons but you know our, our bodies and our minds are an amazingly sophisticated systems and so my um understanding from what he was saying and for people listening is know yourself begin to be aware of yourself of what your particular signals are and pay attention to them and find out for you what are those signals saying and maybe just jot down a few words like put it in a notes in your phone or in a little book begin to examine what's going on in you and that will be an amazing root finder to living a better life.
That's it for this week. Thanks again to my brilliant guest, Johan Hari, my producer, Sophie King at Move Sounds, and to you, of course, for listening. Please continue to share the podcast with your friends and families. I really love to see your comments and how these conversations are helping you and the people in your life. I'll be back next week with another incredible guest who has been through so much in her life, it is hard to imagine. So make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out.